0: If God's people do not know God's word, God's people are going to fight a winless battle. And where does that start, folks? Yes, it starts with your personal quiet time and your personal study in the scriptures and in your personal time at home. But it also begins with the word of God being sounded out from powerful pulpits across America where the word of God is, the truth of God is spoken loudly, unadulterated, unabridged, given completely because because the error is coming in quickly, and God needs to fight that error with His truth.
1: This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed.
0: Epistle to the Philippians, Philippians chapter number three. And after you have found that, out of respect for God's word, if you would please stand as we read our text. Philippians chapter number three, we're going to be reading in verse number one through verse number three, Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse number one. This is the word of God. Finally, my brethren rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now, Lord, that you would teach us your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. We have called this portion of Scripture, which is verses 1 through 3, the distinctive traits of the believer. But those traits are really found kind of in a synopsis form in verse 3, where Paul says, "...for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh." If you were to look, some time ago I decided to look throughout the scripture and try to find the one scripture that is the great synopsis of what a believer should be, my study of Philippians ended, my my task of that ended at the study of Philippians when I got to verse 3 because as you browse through the scripture, particularly the New Testament, this verse kind of is a great, probably the best description of what a true believer is. Those who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And while the character of the true believer is found in verse 3, Paul spends the first two verses in sort of a contrast. He defines what is a true Christian in verse 3 by comparing it to a false religion in verse 2. And as you well know, folks, the theme of comparing the true religion with the false is a constant theme throughout Scripture. And one of the things that we've done in our 30 years together in studying the Word of God verse by verse has been to compare many times the false with the true. Because so many times as you study the Word of God, The true religion, the true doctrine, it stands in total contrast with the false. And the focus of the word of God in so many places is to naturally put the focus on what is true, but also to put the focus on what is wrong to bring what is true into greater focus. Listen, church, it has always, always been the ploy of Satan to infiltrate the church with his lies. It has always been the ploy of Satan throughout the redemptive history to cause men to rise up, yes, even within the congregation, in order to lead the congregation astray. It has always been the desire of Satan to really energize grievous wolves to attack the flock and tear it to shreds with this false doctrine. And by contrast, it has always been the call of God to raise up men to be nourished in the word of God and in sound doctrine to be able to refute the heretic and to warn the congregation of the intrusion of error. That has always been God's way. That will always be God's way. Because as the lie of Satan is propounded loudly, God's truth must be sounded even louder. And God has always raised up godly men to warn the congregation of the false, of the intrusion of the lie. And really, church, it is between the truth and the lie that the battle lines are drawn, isn't it? If you don't think that the Christian life is a battle, well, you are either not in the battle or you haven't been in the battle long because the Christian life is a battle, literally. That's why Paul says so clearly in Ephesians chapter 6 that in order for you and I to be able to fight this battle, we need the armor of God. And what did we tell you a few weeks ago was the only offensive weapon that we have within the armor of God. That is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If God's people do not know God's word, God's people are going to fight a winless battle. And where does that start, folks? Yes, it starts with your personal quiet time and your personal study in the scriptures and your personal time at home. But it also begins with the word of God being sounded out from powerful pulpits across America where the word of God is, the truth of God is spoken loudly unadulterated, unabridged given completely because the error is coming in quickly and God needs to fight that error with his truth and that's our responsibility right and that's where the battle lines are drawn that's the line not in the sand that's the line in the concrete because a line in the sand can be moved can't it That is the line in the concrete. It is the line between truth and error. And the church needs to be aware of false doctrine. And the church needs to be able to understand that, listen, folks, Satan always reveals himself as an angel of light. The apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 14, and no marvel, but Satan himself is transformed or revealed into an angel of light. Satan is not going to come to you folks with an out and out lie because that would be too obvious. Satan is going to come to us with a subtle lie. And then as he is given place in that congregation, he hammers more and hammers more and hammers more with the, with the utter deceitfulness of his lie. But Satan starts with the subtleness of the lie. That's why the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 about the subtlety of Satan. Because Satan's tricky, isn't he? Satan's subtle. Satan is a deceiver. In fact, the name Satan means deceiver. He is a deceiver. And the Apostle Paul knew very well how subtle Satan works his deceit. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, But I fear, speaking to a very troubled church, isn't he? But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his what? Subtility his subtleness, his trickery. So your minds might should be corrupted from the simplicity or the singleness of Christ. And so what Paul is doing here in 2 Corinthians 11 and what he is doing in Philippians chapter 3 church is really giving us a warning. And he's giving them a warning that will safeguard them Because church, listen, the counterfeit is always around. It's always on Satan's agenda. And it's always a threat to the church. The fake, the fraud. I remember my freshman year in Bible college. I was 18 years of age, away from home for the first time. And I decided when I got to Charlotte, North Carolina, actually it was south of Charlotte, North Carolina, I decided that I needed to buy myself a watch. I didn't have a watch. And I said to myself, I'm in college, I'm a college man now. And I need a watch. So I went off to buy a watch. I didn't have any money, but I was going to go buy a watch. So I went in the store Looked in the cabinet of the store and I found a beautiful gold Rolex with diamonds for the numbers, diamonds around the head, and a gold band. That watch is mine. This is God's will. This is God's will. I asked the guy, I didn't know where I was. I just walked in the store that said watches. I, so I walked in there. I'm in the brand new city. I've been there about a week. I walk in there, find this thing. I asked the guy how much he wants for it. He told me. I, I, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you how much I paid for it because that should have been a clue. And I'm not going to tell you how much I paid for it, but I will tell you this. Anybody be, ever been in that store five and below? Okay. Okay. And that's what I mean by when I say the price should have told me something. Well, I took that thing back to the dorm, I put that thing on my wrist, and man, I was strutting like a peacock. I got me a ten thousand dollar Rolex for five and below. And I was proud of that thing. You know, that's the time where you, when you get a watch like that, that's the time where it's, uh, it's 32 degrees outside, but you wear a short sleeve shirt. Right? Just so you can show off the gold on your wrist. And somebody comes out and says, wow, what a watch. Where'd you get that? I, I don't know. I just found it. Found it at the store. Well, put it on my nightstand that night when I turned in and I woke up the next morning, then I put that Rolex watch on my wrist. And as I put the Rolex watch on my wrist, I heard something there tinkering around. I really didn't know what it was because in Bible college, you have to get up at 0 dark 30. So it wasn't light outside yet. But about halfway through Greek class at 7 a.m. on a Friday morning, I looked down at my Rolex watch. And the name Rolex was floating at the bottom of the crystal. Along with two of the diamonds that were supposed to have told me the hour. They were floating at the bottom of the head of the Rolex With the name Rolex. Well, I decided I was going to take this piece of junk back to the store. So I went, parked my car, walked down the sidewalk. I said, let me see what store this is. Because I didn't even look at the name. All I saw was watches and neon in in the door. And you guys can guess what the sign over the door said. Can you tell it with me? Pawn. On. sucker well I didn't get my money back but when I was studying this passage in Philippians I thought about that I did not thought about that in 20 years but when I was thinking about that studying this passage I thought about the fraud and how I was convinced this may not have been a this may not have been a real Rolex, but I was convinced that it was at least gold, and I was doubly convinced that at least in 24 hours the name Rolex wouldn't have been floating at the bottom of the crystal. And the point is that I were reminded, church, is that the counterfeits are always around. You always, church, have to be mindful of the counterfeit. Now, in that regard, church, I was only out five bucks for. For fake, but let me tell you what: when someone comes into the church and they begin to preach a false doctrine, they begin to preach a false gospel. Then that is, when, then what's at stake is not five dollars. What is at stake are the souls of men and women. And we have to be mindful, and we have to be careful of the counterfeit. And in order for us to be careful of that counterfeit, you and I have to have a standard in order to do that. It is of great concern to me that we are, that we are spiritually discerning enough that we're not able to, to discern the lie. But it's almost like Christians today just kind of close their eyes to the, to the false. They just kind of turn a deaf ear and they, and they turn their, they shut their eyes to the lie. And as Paul stated in our text last week that we saw, That one of the safeguards that will protect the child of God is to do what? Verse 1. Finally, we said that that word meant what? Furthermore, it doesn't mean I'm done. It means furthermore or in addition to. Do what? Rejoice in the Lord. And we saw together that there were many reasons for us to rejoice in the Lord, didn't we? And that our joy is based on just that. In the Lord. It's a very important prepositional phrase. We rejoice in the Lord. And it has to do, folks, with the fact that joy is what helps arm us to be discerning in the battle for the truth. And one of the areas that's such a cause for us to rejoice that we did not have time to mention to you last week is that we rejoice because we are secure in Christ. We are secure in Christ. Folks, let me tell you something. If you go into a church and they teach you that you can lose your salvation, they are false teachers. They are false prophets. And they are preaching to you a lie. We are secure in Christ. And that is what causes us to be joyous. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall, what, church? Never perish. Neither shall any man, any man pluck them out of my hand. Paul said in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 25, And this is the promise that he has promised us. What, church? Eternal life. The psalmist said in Psalm 125 and verse 1, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which, listen to folks, cannot be removed, but abideth forever. You're in Christ this morning. You cannot be moved, and that is something to rejoice in. And Paul states that everything that he is telling them, that he's told them before, And he says, that's not troubling to him, he says in verse 1, but it is a safeguard to them. And the repeated message was not only about false teachers, but it was also about rejoicing in the Lord. Because listen, church, we are the safest theologically and ideologically when we are the surest emotionally. Okay? Meaning that when we rest in Christ and we find our cause for rejoicing in Him, then we are at the beginning point of being armed for the battle. If you are defeated emotionally, you are going to do absolutely no good in the battle because you're not ready to fight. If you are not finding your joy in the Lord, but you're finding your joy in circumstances, you're finding your joy in people, you're finding your joy in your job, you're finding your joy in your relationships, you're finding your joy in things that can change, you're not ready to fight because you need to find your joy in the Lord because He's the only constant. He doesn't change, and when you rejoice in Him, you'll never change, and you'll be ready for the battle. Any other time, church, you and I aren't ready to battle if we're not finding our joy in the Lord. Paul says, my repeated reminding you, he says in verse one, my repeated reminding you of truth is not a troubles- is not troublesome to me. Paul does in church, what does Paul, what does verse one say? Paul didn't have any trouble repeating himself. Paul had no trouble at all repeating himself. So if I come across to you as repeating you double messages on more than one occasion, I'm just following the example of Paul. Because Paul says in verse 1, I have absolutely no trouble repeating myself to you. Why? Because for you, it is safe. Because Christian, you need to be reminded what you have in Christ. You need to be reminded of the false teachers. You need to be reminded that your joy is found in Jesus Christ alone. You need to be reminded that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, in Christ alone, by the scriptures alone. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of the heavenly home that is ours, so guaranteed as if I'm already there. You and I need to be reminded of the blessedness of the eternal state. You and I need to be reminded of the doctrine of justification. You and I need to be reminded of the wonders of propitiation. You and I need to be reminded of the wonders of sanctification. You and I need to be reminded of the wonders of glorification. We need to be reminded. And Paul says it is no trouble for me to do it, but for you it is safe. Because the more you and I are reminded of truth, the more we can be armed with that truth, right? Notice the word "safe" there in verse one, and this is all by way of introduction. For those of you who are on page two and taking notes, I had someone tell me this week. She's a precious, precious woman. She told me this week I was going through your sermon the other week. I had, I think, I was up to two or three pages, and then you said point number one. It's like that's just the introduction. And I'm, and she's telling me the story. I'm thinking you got three pages. of have an introduction. I don't know who did the better job, her or me. But anyway, anyway, look at the word "safe" there in verse one. It means to be firm. It means to be stable. Listen, church, the apostle Paul happily reminds the believers to rejoice in the Lord because that will ensure that they are stable. You know, you 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 look at a Christian who is unstable. What do I mean by unstable? James describes a Christian that's unstable. Only he? he's like the what? He's like the waves of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed, meaning what? He's up one minute, down the other. You look at a Christian that is emotionally, theologically, and ideologically unstable. I will show you a Christian that hasn't found their joy in the Lord, but are trying to find their joy in circumstances. And listen, church, the longer you try to find your joy in the circumstances, those circumstances, those people, that job, that place will always change. Find your joy in Jesus Christ, the changeless one. And you see a Christian who's unstable, I'll show you a Christian that's not finding their joy in the Lord. Listen, as much as I love my wife, I don't find my joy in our marriage. I find my joy in the Lord, and then He gives me my joy in, the, in my marriage. Because if I find my joy in my marriage independent of Christ, then I'm going to find a false joy. I find my joy in my marriage through my joy in Christ. But if everything in life, church, has to come through Him first it has to come through him first and Paul says you need to be firm in your joy when believers are not driven by rejoicing in the lord we've missed the foundation of being able to fight the battle and when we rejoice in the lord in the lord right Not in circumstances, not in spite of your circumstances, but in the Lord. Because it's a matter of what, church? Focus. It's a matter of focus. When we rejoice in the Lord, dedication to His truth becomes of utmost importance because as we love the Lord and find our joy in the Lord, we love His truth and find our joy in that. And then we find the desire to defend the truth. So the first distinctive mark of a true believer is that number one, he finds pleasure in Christ. But let's go to number two, fights phonies. Now that's forced alliteration if I've ever seen it in my life. Fights phonies. In the cosmos. So why would you use the word cosmos, Pastor? Because, y'all don't know Greek? Cosmos means world, but world doesn't begin with C. Okay? Y'all ought to be used to me by now doing that. But that's true. He fights phonies in the cosmos. After commanding the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And after giving them the first important distinctive mark of a true believer. He gives them a strong... And he gives them a direct warning. And this warning serves as another distinctive mark of a true believer. And that is, church, the ability to discern truth from error. God's people need to be able to have discernment. And just like faith, discernment grows. It is the job of a faithful, mature pastors and elders that warned the church of false teachers, right? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, the apostle Paul says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And I personally believe that the word pastors and teachers, that's one job, okay? The man who stands behind the pulpit it needs to be a pastor teacher. I had one person say they were going to another church and we were talking about the pastors. And they said to me, my, my, my pastor is a wonderful pastor, but he's a horrible teacher. Well, then he's not a pastor, is he? Because the Bible says the pastor must be a pastor teacher. He must be able and willing to teach the truth. And so you had to like it. But the pastor must be able and willing to do it. Why? For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the encouraging of the body of Christ. And then he goes on to say, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or mature man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Get this, that, or this is a henna clause in the Greek, or a purpose clause, for the purpose that we henceforth be no more children. That's speaking about the level of maturity. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. How many of you know Christians that believe everything that they're told? They believe everything that they're told. And there could be a, they're, they, they could be called a child who is carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sleight of men and cutting craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And again, church, that is why Paul states for him to repeat these things are absolutely no problem, but it is safe for them because added to rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 2. What does Paul say? Paul says, beware. Stop right there. Beware. Beware. I want you to notice that Paul does not tell the believers there to be afraid of their enemies Paul doesn't want them to be afraid of their enemies. He wants them to be able to recognize the enemies of the cross. They're not. They're our enemies because, listen, they're the enemy of the cross. Somebody that gets in the pulpit or comes to you at your door and tries to pronounce to you or proclaim to you a a lie, they are are the enemies of you, but they are the enemies, number one, of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you try to come between me and the cross, you are automatically my enemy. And they are automatically your enemy. Not in a moral sense necessarily, but definitely in a theological sense. Paul says, "Beware! No, don't be afraid of them, but be able to recognize them." The word "beware" is the Greek word "blepo," and it literally means uh, "like rejoice." It's an imperative. Uh, this is not an option. This is not an option. Paul is not saying if the sun is shining, beware. If the sun is shining, rejoice. He says, no, you rejoice. You beware. It's a second second person noun in the Greek. And he says, you all. He's speaking to the entire congregation. Second person plural. You all beware. You beware. And this word, church, means much more than just being on guard, which we should be. It means this to, it speaks of an intense, earnest, Contemplation. It's the same Greek word that used in Luke chapter six and verse forty-one, where Jesus says, "Why beholdest?" And that's the Greek word "blepo." Why beholdest the mote moat in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in your own eye? Paul said. Jesus says, "Why are you having such intense contemplation about the about the little speck of dust in your brother's eye, but you have absolutely no look at the at the beam coming out of your own eye?" And the idea here is intense scrutiny, intense contemplation. To look at with such earnest contemplation that you can tell between the truth and the lie. It means to become aware of. It means to take notice. Listen, folks, as the church of Jesus Christ, as those who belong to Christ, we need to be open-eyed. We need to be open-eyed. Do not look at those in other religions through rose-colored glasses. A pastor, teacher, a shepherd will be constantly warning the people about the threat of false teachers. God's people need to be on guard. God's people need to be on guard. Listen, folks, when you when you flip through the channel on TBN and you come across Joel Osteen, you better be on guard. When you flip through the television, you come across the shepherd's chapel, you better be on guard. When you come across when you come across the hour of what used to be the hour of power, if you have reruns, you better be on guard. Robert Schuler, you better be on guard. And the Church of Jesus Christ is called to be closely on guard. Uh, Jude says, James uh, uh, preached this so eloquently several months ago, but in Jude 4, he says this, For there are certain men crept in unawares who are before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men. That's how the Bible describes false teachers. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, when somebody comes to you proclaiming a gospel, they have one thing, there is one question on your mind, what do you do with Jesus Christ? What do you do with Jesus Christ? Because if they are wrong on Jesus Christ, then they are automatically wrong on everything else. You have nothing to say to me, and they should have nothing to say to you if they are wrong on Jesus Christ. If they miss the point of the deity of Christ, if they missed the point of the atonement of Christ, if they have missed the point of the person of Christ, if they missed the point of the substitutionary of Christ, then they have missed everything else. If they deny the cross, they've missed everything else. Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, Beware, there's that word again, beware, blepo, be intense scrutiny, intense contemplation, lest any man spoil you through what? philosophy, and vain deceit. Folks, let me tell you something. Let me get a little personal here for a minute. Will you do that all the time, Pastor? Yeah, I guess I do, because I love you, right? Let me get a little personal here. You and I have no business seeking ungodly, uh, worldly, psychological help. Because a worldly psychologist has absolutely nothing to say to you that's going to help you biblically. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't let people spoil you through vain, through philosophy. Because what is human philosophy? Vain deceit. Vain deceit. What is it? After the traditions of men. After the rudiments of the world. And here's the key. But not after Christ. Not after Christ. So the church is called. Church is called to be on guard. To watch to look with intense contemplation those that claim to speak for God. John says in 1st John chapter 4 and verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Just because somebody comes to you and claims to speak for God, don't you dare believe them just because they say they're from God. Paul, John says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but do what? Try or test the Spirit. Why? why? To find out whether or not they're of God. Because why? Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And listen, church, if that was true in John's day, how 2,000 years ago, then how much greater is it in our day? Proverbs 15, uh, 14, 15, the, the Solomon says this, the simple, the simple-minded believes every word But the prudent man looketh well to his goings. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, Beware, is that word again? Beware of who? False prophets. False prophets. Which come to you in, but are inwardly, they are what, church? Ravening wolves. Ravening wolves. And the apostle gives the church three areas of warning in Philippians 3. Number one, verse 2, he says, beware of what? Beware of dogs. Beware of dogs. Now, dogs is kuno in the Greek. And it's it's not thought in the biblical times the way we think of dogs today. You and I have domesticated dogs, haven't we? Most of us have dogs. Some of us have more than one dog dog. Uh, but it, most people have got dogs, and they've domesticated those dogs. They're house animals, and they love their dogs, and that's great. The fact is, in Bible times, the, the dogs were not thought of the way they are today. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they are mentioned frequently, and most often in the Bible, dogs are mentioned in a derogatory way. Because the term, you'll find, the term dog is often used as an insult. The Jewish people, for example, thought of the Gentiles in Matthew 15, 26. That's you and me. Thought of the Gentiles as dogs. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 18, prostitutes were called dogs. Dogs. And in 1 Kings chapter 14 verse 11, what you see there is dogs roaming through the streets eating dead bodies. And so dogs in the Bible came to be known as an unclean animal. And according to 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 36, it was the dogs that ate the body of Jezebel. Most of the body, at least. In the land of Israel, for example, dogs were known as scavengers. And they were known as scavengers because what they consumed was repulsive. And dogs are still that way, aren't they? I don't care how much you try to... How to how much you try... To, I've got... My wife has got a poodle. And she's got a shepherd. But my wife's poodle is stuck up. If you've ever never met Roxy, Roxy is a snob. She's 10 years old, 10 or 11 years old, and she is stuck up. She's not only stuck up with other dogs, she's stuck up with other people. She's a snob. And I just, most of the time, I just really don't like her because she's a snob. And my wife has her groomed and has her little bows put in her ear, has a little scarf put around her neck. And, uh, you know, it has, you know, the, the perfume that they put on the animals. They put the, put the perfume on her and she comes back from the groomer and she smells all pretty and she looks all pretty. But let me tell you one thing right now. You set that stuck up smelling good dog right in front of a bag of trash. She's going to go and rummage through the bag of trash because she's a dog. Now, if you're a dog lover, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says about a dog. And you, listen, you may, you, if you got a dog and you love that dog, you know that I'm telling you the truth. You put that dog in front of a bag of trash, they're going to rummage through that trash. Maybe not while you're looking, because they probably know better, but they're going to go through that trash. And that's what, and that's what dogs in the Bible came to be known, repulsive animals. In Proverbs chapter 26 verse 11, the Bible says of dogs that, and you've probably seen this, that a dog returns to his what? Vomit. You've all seen dogs eat, throw up and then eat it again. You've all seen that. That's biblical. I didn't say it wasn't repulsive. I just said it was biblical. That's what the Bible says dogs do. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 31, And ye shall be holy men unto me, neither shall you eat any flesh that is torn of beasts in the field. Ye shall cast it to the who? Dogs, because that's the way they view dogs. And you look in the scripture, the revulsion of dogs is crystal clear. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 11, the wicked ruler dynasties uh, were known as being eaten by dogs. Because dogs alone were known as domesticated animals that were very willing to eat even a human corpse. Dogs have no problem eating things we would consider Repulsive. Their own vomit, even eating their own excrement, for example. That's a dog. And so, to be called a dog is not a compliment. It's not a compliment. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 10, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, we'll quote it to you, but Wichita will put it on the screen for you. In Isaiah chapter 56, verse 10, uh, the metaphor dogs is used to, uh, describe Israel's greedy leaders. It is not surprising then that dogs are juxtaposed to pigs. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6, give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before what? Or what? Pigs. Pigs. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, But it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is returned unto his vomit, and the sow, the pig, that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Why does a washed pig go back to the mud? Because that's the nature of a pig. That's the nature of a pig. In making, dogs made in the mind of the first century people, dogs on some level as unclean as pigs. And to be identified as a pig is to draw attention to one's miserable condition and an inconsequential creature. And to refer to somebody as a dog is an insult on the lowest social scale. So when Paul calls these people dogs, he had a very repulsive analogy in mind. One of the characteristic folks of scavenger dogs is that they roam in packs and Paul refers to these Jewish false teachers as pigs was his analogy correct as dogs rather was his analogy correct dogs were considered filthy and unclean listen church so are false teachers so are false teachers dogs were considered vicious so are false teachers Dogs were considered pack-roaming animals. So are false teachers. And Paul calls these false teachers, dogs. Because in their character, that's exactly what they are. And you and I need to be careful and you and I need to be discerning to know about these dogs, these false teachers.
1: Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m., as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross through the church to the world until Christ come. God bless you.